Hello and welcome to The Case Files. I'm Kate Jabot and over the course of this podcast series, I'll be bringing you the true life stories behind some of the UK's most fascinating legal cases, all told with unparalleled access to the people and lawyers closest to events. In this episode, we'll hear what lies ahead for the families of the 22 people killed in the Manchester Arena bombing as the public inquiry approaches. It may be that at the end of this inquiry, there is a glaring error that means that this attack could have been stopped. But it may be that that isn't the case. I don't know the answer yet, and we won't know the answer until we get to the end. We'll ask how those who lost loved ones have coped in the intervening years. I will not sit in my lounge crying and disintegrating and sitting corners and cry myself to sleep. That's not what he would have wanted for me. And we'll investigate the legacy of the tragedy in a city which was torn apart. It's been changed, but actually not in the way that those who planned this atrocity wanted. It's made it stronger. When tragedy hit, it was a beacon of hope on that pretty bleak horizon. There are some cases which leave an imprint not just on those involved or even on the country they happened in, but on the whole world. Today's case file takes us back to 2017 and to Manchester, a city which, in a few short moments, would be changed forever. It's a case which will take us deep into the human psyche to places few people ever have to go. You'll find yourself wondering, how would I react if my life was changed in an instant? chaotic rush to the nearest exit. <laughs> you just, you can't comprehend. Seem to be in, you know, like the stairwell. Yeah. Of where you would go out. Yeah. It seemed to be in the stairwell. Well, that's, that's what it sounded like. Your first thoughts are that it, it's an accident. It's something, something that's, that's, you know, blown up, that's a speaker or, or something like that. I didn't feel so good that day, so I went and had an early night. My daughter woke me up. She went into my bedroom and was messing with my phone and I said, what's she doing with my phone? And she said, oh, sorry, Mum, sorry I woke you. I'm just checking if Martin left a message. On Monday night, the 22nd of May, Fegan Murray had gone to bed, thinking her son Martin was at his house packing for the trip of a lifetime. He'd been saving up every penny for two years to go to America. Why would Martin leave me a message? It's quarter to 11. And she said, oh, his friends can't find him. They've got separated. And I said, oh, is he? Is he not at home? And then she said, well, they've, they've gone out to a gig and there's been an incident. I said, incidents, what do you mean? She said, mum, there's, there's been an explosion. She was really reluctant to say it, but she said it in the end. To be honest with you, she hadn't even finished the word. I ran past her flew down the stairs and my husband was stood by the television watching the news flash. News was gradually coming out. An explosion in the foyer of Manchester Arena as thousands of young fans were leaving an Ariana Grande concert. And, of course, they'll be backed up by other forces And I said to him, Martin is there and he got separated from his friends. They can't find him. My husband said he always leaves concerts early. He'll be in the gay village ordering drinks for his friends. I said, but he's not answering his phone. And he said, you know what he's like? His phone charge will have been empty and he'll ring you in the morning. Anyway, I've got work tomorrow. I'm going to bed and off. My husband went to bed. And my daughter and I sat up and watched the news. It soon became clear this was a terrorist attack. A homemade bomb packed with shrapnel. We were in the arena and we had a bang and I just run for my life. The damage was catastrophic. So we made a cup of tea, carried on watching the news and back water pass. I turned round to Louise and said, he's dead. And she was sort of horrified and, I, and she said, why are you saying that? And I said, because I have suddenly got this feeling that 
he's not even on the planet anymore. I have just literally, I felt it in the pit of my stomach, really. There was just absolutely, all of a sudden, nothingness. Talking to Fegan Murray about her son, Martin, you quickly learn they shared a very close relationship. I don't know if it's a myth that gay boys have really good bonds with their mothers. I have no idea. But certainly for me and him, it was true. I could always talk to him about anything. If I'd fallen out with my husband, little tiff, like you have in any marriage, I'd ring Martin. By the end of the phone call, he'd cheer me up. You know, he always knew what to say. And it was vice versa, actually. He'd ring me. I remember sometimes when he had depression, he rang me at half past two in the morning, crying. And I said, what's the matter? And he said, I feel really suicidal. I don't trust myself. Can I come round? I'd be sat on the settee with his head on my knees, stroking his head, and he'd be crying and crying. And eventually we'd have a cup of tea and eventually we'd chat and talk and laugh. And And he came to stay with you regularly, didn't he? Yes, he did. He had a pair of pyjama bottoms and a Mariah Carey T-shirt. He absolutely adored the woman. Every sort of 10 days or so, he'd come straight from work to our house, get changed into his PJs, have dinner with us. And then before he was on his way home, he got changed again. As soon as Fegan heard the news, she sensed she wouldn't see her son again. We had a couple of his friends phone us. I remember saying to one of his friends, you need to just prepare yourself for the worst. I remember the young woman crying on the phone. Um, We just carried on watching the news and my husband came down about four o'clock and sat with us for the rest of the morning. Your first thoughts are that it's an accident, it's something, you know, blown up. I just life. There was a message on TV to say, anybody who's worried about people, please go to the Etihad Stadium in Manchester. When Fegan and her husband arrived at the stadium, they were surrounded by other families desperate for news. They led us into where the directors' galleries were with tables and stuff. So that's where we were being looked after. And we were looked after. I can't even describe to you how well we were looked after. Hour after hour, we were given cups of tea, biscuits. Then pizza arrived somewhere that a pizza place donated. Phone charges because... Everybody was inundated, not just our table, but every all the families were inundated with phone calls. And uh, by the end of the day, we had about, just for Martin, about 25, 30 of us were there. Most of his friends were there, family was there, you know, so there was quite a lot of us. And how were your conversations with the other people who were with you? You, you lock eyes with strangers, really, who were just like us, waiting for news. And you just grab hold of each other and hug each other, you know, and comfort each other. And you don't know them from Adam, but that's what you do because you have this shared pain and worry. So we noticed one by one, family after family was being taken to a side room and they emerged in floods of tears and we knew it was bad news. So we all went into this big director's suite, a big boardroom table Somebody brought loads of bottles of water and then the police, our family liaison officer who was assigned to us, then broke the news to us at 20 to 10 that Martin was one of the people who lost their life. And you had to break the news to Martin's dad, your ex-husband, I just had to tell him on the phone that that's what happened. And he obviously was very upset and crying. And I just tell, told him to look after himself and his wife. There wasn't much more to say, really. The next thing we did is we all came to our house and we all stayed up till probably four in the morning. We all had a couple of vodka and Diet Coke. That was Martin's favourite drink, so we all had a drink and remembered him. We laughed and cried, you know. And then everybody just found somewhere to lie down and sleep. 22 people died in the bombing. 
600 adults and 340 children were injured in the blast. The bomber, an Islamist extremist, Salman Abedi, also died. The event was tragic for families personally affected and traumatic for the whole city. Andy Burnham had been mayor of Greater Manchester for just two weeks when the bomb went off. I'd just returned from a pretty normal day, really. I'd been playing five-a-side football with my brothers. I'd dropped a bottle of wine off for my dad. I was back uh, at my house watching Newsnight when the mayor of Liverpool City Region started to ring my phone and I saw one missed call and I thought, well, I'll ring him in the morning, two missed calls. And he was ringing for the third time when I picked up the phone and Steve was screaming into the phone saying, my girls are at the arena. Do you know what's happening? What's happening? And um, it was at that time that I also then another heard another call coming through and that was the chief constable. So it was, I, it's a sort of wave of sort of nausea really that came over me, just the, the enormity of it sank in. It was uh, a dark, dark night for many, many people. And can you tell me about when you first went to the site what was your experience of that? Um, hmm, it's hard to talk in some ways just because of uh, you know just images you'll never forget. Yeah, I think we probably all felt living through that week. It was a sort of a slightly out of body experience at times. You just couldn't believe what you were seeing. This would have been the Wednesday, I think, after the Monday. The forensic team was was in. We talked to those investigating the scene and uh, we were with the chief constable and it was in the very early stages of the investigation and we were there to provide full support to those teams who were going through the, the, the debris that was there in painstaking detail and the job that they did was incredible really to watch them going about their work, the care with which they went about their work and I think we're all benefiting now from the quality of the investigation that they, that they did. And what were the days and weeks after the attack like in Manchester? I mean, they, they were just very, very intense and in some ways a roller coaster of emotions, really. You know, by moments, some of the most harrowing things that, that you, you kind of have to, to live through when you see the, the grief at close quarters and you just think about the loss and the pain but then you see the other side of humanity in, in the next moment. And I just remember living through those early days after the attack and kind of going through that sort of, you know, the, the, that kind of swirl of emotions. My role was obviously to provide some kind of leadership reassurance through crisis. It was to be a, a kind of focal point for people. You're in the position where people are looking to you for something to help them in those moments sometimes you know you you know it's hard but hopefully you can find the words that then help people begin to um to come back together after the the, the deep shock at the start um, what assistance was manchester offered by the rest of the country what offers coming in oh it was it was it was huge it wasn't just the country it was all over the world you know so i was receiving messages from World leaders, mayors all over all over the world, very prominent individuals. It was overwhelming, actually. But also, to be fair, the, the then Prime Minister was very much in contact, um, providing support, reassurance. Um, I attended COBRA with the Chief Constable of Greater Manchester for a fairly long period after the, the attack and in that immediate um, aftermath. So... The support was there, definitely, in those, in those early days. It, it changed quickly, though. I think people need to remember this. It was in the middle of a, a general election campaign. Then we had London Bridge, what was, I think, 10 days or so after the arena, a general election, and then Grenfell. And so that was a, a period that was very intense. And I think it's just a fact to say that the, the national spotlight moved away quite quickly, really. And a few months down the line, you know, I was left arguing publicly for the costs to be reimbursed to, to Greater Manchester. And that, that, that was something I hadn't wanted to do because I'd been doing it privately. But, you know, quickly, we were a little left out on our own trying to, to, um, to deal with the, uh, the enormity of the, of the issues. And eventually, the national government did respond, but the initial help didn't turn into the sort of more medium-term help, unfortunately. 
One immediate decision the mayor had to take was whether to bring the city together following the attack. The big decision we made that day was whether or not to hold a vigil. Now, bear in mind, you know, after an attack on a, on a city, you know, there is a, a debate, isn't there, about do you bring people back in? Do you promote a gathering? Um, but I would certainly look back on that as the best decision we took. It sticks in my mind as a sort of bright but chilly and blustery day. And I remember a very uncertain mood in the city in the day as we were making a statement as we did outside the town hall and then travelling about to the different locations that I, that I went to. And I remember then arriving at the vigil and all of the nervousness and anxiety everybody had and felt. And then that moment when Tony Walsh stepped forward and addressed the crowd, it, it was a really a, a, an exceptional moment I don't think I'll ever live through again. His voice hit the crowd. It sort of, you could almost see a ripple of kind of resonance kind of passing through people, a kind of surge of relief somehow that people kind of at least were hearing a message of defiance, I guess, and a, and a sort of message of, you know, get up and stay strong and we can beat this. And Tony was almost sort of giving people their confidence back and the sense of belief back. And it was such a moment of the like of which I don't think I'll ever live through again. I remember sort of driving up and just thinking, you know, what a horrendous thing to have done, really, to kids, to excited kids who were, many of them at their first concert, sort of full of excitement and expectation and, and the bomber must have known they were children when he detonated his device. You know, it, I, I just, you know, couldn't, I just couldn't imagine what would go through somebody's head to do that. And I just remember thinking that all the way up there, you know, throughout that drive. You know, I've seen a lot of bad things in terrorism circles, but that, you know, it really did take my breath away, I'll be honest. Journalist Duncombe Gardam is based in London. He's been reporting extensively on terrorism for newspapers and television since 9-11. I think the point is to try and find out information, to fill in gaps, to inform the public so that they don't just have a big question mark, but they're able to see a little bit about why this might have happened and who might have carried it out. It was quite a frantic pace, honestly, because we were trying to work out who the bomber was and, and the police were, were conducting raids across South Manchester, so that became the focus. The atmosphere in South Manchester, as you can imagine, was pretty stunned, really, by what had happened. So we were trying to work out, you know, who was this individual? Were there any other people involved? Did his family know about what was happening? And trying to get in touch with family members and friends of the family. And how did the next few weeks unfold? Who did you talk to? We were trying to build up the initial family picture, which emerged fairly quickly that, you know, there were three brothers and I think two sisters. If family friend told us that the two brothers had actually gone back to Libya and, and no one knew that, that Salman Abidi had returned. It also emerged that the two younger brothers had been living in the family house on their own, that there was no parents with them at that stage. Somebody told me that Salman had got a past sort of uh, smoking drugs and that sort of stuff. They sort of described him as a bit of a loner. The family had a, an involvement with Didsbury Mosque and I knew the mosque a little bit, so I started to talk to people at the mosque. And also the Libyan connection emerged as an important element of it and the fact that Ramadan, the dad, seemed to have connections to the Libyan Islamic fighting group which um, had fought against Gaddafi during the 80s and 90s. And then slowly we started to build up a picture as well about potential links to ISIS. He'd also known a guy called Abdul Ralph Abdullah who was serving a jail term for helping individuals travel out to Syria. And in fact, his brother was about to face trial for actually joining ISIS. But we, we were able to run a series of stories essentially piecing back together who Salman Abidi was, 
this kind of loner that had been allowed to live in the family home on his own, smoking drugs, not a great performer at school. His family were quite religious, uh, but he hadn't been very religious. The bomber, Salman Abedi, was the centre of a huge police and press investigation. I asked Duncan if, during his work, he got closer to knowing the motive for the attack. Will we actually be able to work out exactly why he did it? We won't, is the answer, and partly that's because we don't actually have a lot of the information that we need. A lot of it would be these days on his electronic devices, his mobile phone and laptops, and we don't have those. And the investigators, initially, their supposition was that he must have had a network that supported him, that helped him get hold of all the material, mix it up and build the bomb. But it emerged eventually that he had no such network and that the only person helping him was his younger brother. The search for Salman Abedi's younger brother Hashem was underway. Meanwhile, families were trying to come to terms with what had happened and making funeral arrangements for their loved ones. Fegan Murray was preparing to see her son Martin's body. I had a phone call late at night from my family liaison officer saying they'd like to dress Martin in something that we choose and would we please send it in with the police. So I said to the lady, the only thing I have of his here is his pyjamas. I can't bear going into his flat. It's too painful. But I have his PJs here. And she said, yeah, that's great. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. So I got them out and I remember sitting on my dining room window seat, crying, smelling the pyjamas and thinking, what do I do? Do I send them in? Do I wash them or do I just keep them here and send somebody to the flat and get something? And I decided in the end I'll do my last duty as a mum. So I washed them, ironed them folded them neatly and sent them in. And that was hard. That was really hard because the temptation was obviously to keep the stuff forever. So tell me how you coped with the grief in the early stages. Um, You're in kind of a zombie-like state at the very beginning because I've had family coming from Germany, police coming in and out of the house. I had undertakers coming in and out of the house reporters coming in and out. So there was a constant, constant stream of people. So it was really hard to actually focus on anything. And um, everybody was busying themselves trying to be helpful. And on day three, I realised nobody's been doing the washing. I suppose my washing machine was in the basement out of sight, so nobody thought about it. So I thought I'd better do some washing. So I took loads of washing in my basement Uh, As I put the washing in, I heard this clinking sound. I thought, what's that? And I looked up and there was a screw, a shiny metal screw, still slightly moving, that had fallen on top of the dryer. And all of a sudden I had a real chill down my spine and I thought, that's Martin saying hello. And I kept it, I held it tight. And I have since then found probably over five, six hundred nuts, screws and bolts that I have kept. Uh, Most of them are really shiny. I find them everywhere, New York, Istanbul, New Zealand, wherever I've been in the last three years, I have found them everywhere. So why is it you think it was the bolts and the nuts and the screws that had a link to Martin? Because that was the uh, content of the bomb. It was a nail bomb. And I'm going to have them melted down and have them made into a bed. And um, there are 16 of these nuts, bolts and screws I'm still waiting for. I can't get them until after the inquiry is over. Once I've got those, they were the ones from his body um, that were retrieved from his body. I want those 16 to be melted down into a heart that the bear is going to hold And it's my kind of way of defying terrorism by symbolising that there's love there and and terrorism isn't going to damage me. It's going to still create love. I mean, on a practical level, how was day-to-day life for you? 
I remember on, uh, at the vigil, I was one of the people speaking at the vigil and I, I cracked a few jokes about the funny side of Martin, like you do, you know, and uh, somebody put on Twitter, she doesn't look like a grieving mum, she's laughing and joking. And I, I thought, what is a grieving mum supposed to look like? You know, it's, um, I do cry a lot. Of course, I'm grieving like crazy. I miss him so, so much every day. But I do my grieving in private, you know, be that breaking my heart in my sleep or in, in the middle of the night when I when everybody else is asleep. It's a very private thing for me, my grieving. I don't want to do it publicly. It's hard to imagine the grief in the homes of all the families affected. As Fegan and her family started to make arrangements for her son's funeral, they discovered it was something that Martin had already considered. For many years, he said to us, I'm going to die young and spectacular. And so when he did die, one of his friends said, you do realise he's got instructions for his funeral on his laptop. Thankfully, we found them, so we knew from the list he wanted to be cremated. I am eternally, eternally grateful to him that he specified that. He specified the songs he wanted, the songs he didn't want. He specified he wants typical diva like he was. He wanted two white horses. So we got him all of that. We arranged everything in accordance with what he wanted. He wanted everyone to be dressed in black with something fabulous. So we were all very strangely dressed, really. We had tiaras and feather boas and rainbow-coloured dicky bows and rainbow-coloured trainers. There was all sorts of weird stuff happening. He was heavily into any kind of diva, Deirdre, Barlow, his all-time favourite. So the coffin, um, we had divas all around the coffin and the lid of the coffin was a full-size Mariah Carey. He would have loved it. It was strange. I remember Daniel, my oldest son, sitting in the car, going to the town hall, watching all the people at the roadside because so, so many hundreds of people came to the roadside clapping as we drove past. And he said, you know, I always found it irritating when people clapped at funerals, but now Martin is dead. I am really rather touched by it. And it was lovely. Uh, People would put their shopping bags down and bow and clap and it was just so respectful, you know, so we were all very humbled. In the midst of their trauma, Fegan went with her husband to see the place where her son had died. So the, the police ladies took my husband and I to the actual foyer area and um, before we went in, they said, so what you're expecting is 22 red roses and every rose is placed where there was a person died. So the head of the rose is always where the head of the person was and the stem is laid in the direction the body fell. So then they said, OK, just before you go in, we need to tell you that Martin was very near the perpetrator. Um, we hadn't realised, we've just seen how close he was. And she said, we light a candle right next to the relevant rose. Go to the rose with a candle. So when we went in, the floor was kind of, there was a tiny crater where the perpetrator had stood. And around it was a shoe horse formation of red roses. And Martin was, I think, the second nearest to him. So that was tough. That was incredibly tough to see that. Um, yeah, etched in my DNA until the day I die, I guess. You're listening to The Case Files, the podcast which brings you the true life stories behind some of the UK's most fascinating legal cases, all told with unparalleled access to the people and lawyers closest to events. As Manchester started to rebuild after the tragedy of the arena bombing, a huge police operation was underway. The person in their sights was Hashem Abedi, the brother of the suicide bomber. And the day after the bombing, he was tracked and detained in Libya. It was an extraordinary operation, but his arrest was just the beginning. It took two long years of negotiation to secure his extradition. Years of wondering if the day would ever come. But in 2019, the day of his trial, 
had at last arrived. The trial was in one of the historic courts at the Old Bailey, big and wood panelled and uh, quite impressive really and has a in the middle of it a big dock which actually has glass around it. The atmosphere was quite nervous on all counts really. I think you know there were members of the families there that were obviously nervous to see this guy and the prosecution were worried. The press pack was certainly tense to make sure we got everything right. Honestly, I think even the defence team didn't know quite what to expect. So I think, you know, it was it was tense, it was nervous, it was quiet, actually. I mean, it's very strange when you've been waiting so long to see somebody in the dark. And I was never, if I'm honest, quite sure how it was going to pan out. And I, I'd read the summary of the case against him, and it looked quite strong. But I just wondered whether he was in a position to to pick it apart, to to say, oh, no, I wasn't there and I wasn't there and that wasn't me, and uh, and to essentially say, you know, my brother duped me as much as he duped anybody else. And that seemed to me to be a possible defence to the whole thing. But it became clear bit by bit, those extra bits of evidence, as they built up the picture, they went through painstakingly the where he'd been by using his mobile phone to geolocate him to various places at various times. That meant he must have been there with his brother and that his brother must have been making the bomb at the same time. And then locating him at key moments where purchases were made for the chemicals and establishing that he had been part of the subterfuge, persuading his cousins and friends to buy chemicals when they didn't know what they were for. So gradually, this kind of picture built up so that you could see that he must be guilty. So if his defence had been different, presumably you think there could have been a chance that he might have been cleared? Uh, you know what, if he'd have stood up and given evidence, he had a chance. But the minute he decided not to participate anymore, I think that was the end of the case, effectively. Did you get an impression of this man? Yeah, I did a bit, and I thought he was cold-hearted. I mean, you know, we use the term sometimes psychopath. It's not really something that psychiatrists use, but... He really did not care at all about the victims that he had killed. He cared, at least as far as I could see, about himself. He didn't just, you know, kill 22 people. He killed his own brother. And he wanted to manipulate the process. He was complaining about having headaches, he didn't want to turn up this day, people were being nasty to him that day. It was all about him. And he didn't even have the bravery at the end of the day to stand up and say, I did it. He had none of that. How frustrating was it that that was his reaction, that he didn't speak at his trial? From my point of view, uh, it was. I always want to try and work out what people's motives are in this. And I think they're often complicated. I think it's very easy sometimes to look at terrorists and think that they are, say, religious fanatics. I think that's the shorthand that people often think of. But the truth of the matter is that often they're not particularly well-educated in religious terms and that their motives often lie elsewhere, that... They can be to do with isolation, alienation, feeling bullied, or maybe being arrogant and having a personality disorder, say, or an element of that that might drive them along those lines. And all those different things can come into play. Sometimes there's an element of guilt, having not been religious enough over the years and feeling that they need to make up for the fact that they weren't religious. And at any rate, they've got hold of this nihilistic interpretation of Islam and decided that the best way to guarantee their entry to paradise is to commit some kind of atrocity. But I'm fascinated by how they got to that point, because 
when we look back on it, there's quite often a point or two points or three points or four points where if somebody had intervened or spotted it or noticed it, they might have been able to do something about it. I'm interested in whether we can help people who may be reading about it to notice whether that might be happening to their son or their friend or their brother. Thankfully, we were told in advance we're going to be physically very near the guy. Um, I think we were only about three, four metres away from him, separated, obviously, by um, bulletproof glass, you know. But um, you, you're a person who's had a career of connecting with people as a therapist and I presumably observing human nature. When you saw him there in front of you, just metres away in the court, what, what did you see? I I saw somebody obviously calculating, but very smart. He was he's intelligent, no doubt about it. A very smart, intelligent guy. But what I felt was, I, I felt almost a sadness, which is not the same as pity for him at all. It's just a sadness that I thought at one point, you're so smart. Why on earth didn't you use that for good? You could have done so much good. And and that's so sad that he he did something evil with that, you know, instead of something positive. Did he actually acknowledge you at all or any of the bereaved relatives? To go to his chair, he physically had to turn towards the family area. So he did have eye contact with us all at some point. Uh, I myself I have no other feelings for him. I I don't feel sorry for him. I don't feel anger towards him either. I'm not angry because... Anger, to me, isn't going to be useful because it'll just make me bitter and I'd much rather see him as something indifferent. Because if I'm angry at a terrorist, they want that. They want to create anger and distress and hurt and all of that. And I don't want to give them that. If I give this guy that kind of emotion, then in a way terrorism means I'd much rather translate anger into something positive, do something good with it. Hashim Abedi was found guilty of murdering 22 people and Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham saw a changed city. A city which adopted one of its historic emblems, a worker bee, and found a new symbolism for it. Well, it's been changed probably forever, uh, but actually not in the way that those who planned this atrocity wanted. It's brought the city region together, uh, made it stronger. You know, the the visibility of the B symbol, I mean, you can't escape it, you can't miss it wherever you go in Greater Manchester. And it's in our 10 boroughs, it's not just in Manchester, it's, it's very much as a Greater Manchester symbol. What it means to me is people saying we are not going to be divided. That's what it's saying. Obviously, what those who planned this wanted was for us to be divided, to to hate each other, to kind of create a cycle of violence. And in that sense, it failed because it brought out a sense of togetherness, which is still, still there today. A public inquiry into the Manchester bombing is scheduled to start on September the 7th during which Slater and Gordon are representing 11 of the families. I asked journalist Duncan Gardham how important it is that a public inquiry is held. I think that sometimes there's a tendency to think, OK, look, the press have had a good old go at, at looking at his background and there have been a few internal reports and the, the parliamentary committee, they've had a look at it and, you know, do we really need another inquiry? And the answer to that is yes, because this is the most important part of the whole process. Because this is where we really get to ask questions and expect answers to those questions. I'm not able to ask those questions, but the most important people in the process, the families of the victims, are able to ask those questions. And they are entitled to expect answers. In fact, the public are entitled to answers to the questions, the two key questions that inevitably arise in these cases. Could it have been stopped? And could more lives have been saved after it went ahead? And I think 
those two questions must be answered in a situation like this. And the public and the families of the victims and indeed those who were badly injured in the attack deserve answers to those questions and to whether lessons have been learnt. And in some cases, lessons should have been learnt and hopefully will be learnt without pointing too many fingers. It's important that we don't lose sight of the fact that Salman and Hashem Abidi launched this attack and nobody else. And whether other things could have been done better and hopefully will be done better is another question. The bomber and his brother are responsible for the attack, nobody else. Litigation lawyer Shane Smith has been working on the case for Slate and Gordon since July 2017. He has experienced other high-profile cases, including the Grenfell Inquiry, and has been working with the Manchester families through the start of the inquest and now into the inquiry. He told me why a public inquiry is appropriate in this case. So an inquest is an independent investigation into an unnatural death with inquiries which are usually called for by a government minister. And it's the government's desire then to get to the bottom of what's happened that they will then start proceedings through the Inquiries Act 2005. So an inquest is governed by a coroner, whereas an inquiry is governed by a chairperson who is usually a retired judge. With an inquest and an inquiry, there is always a public element. So in the interest of transparency, both proceedings will be held in an open courtroom. Now, the difficulty arises, as did arise in this situation, is a lot of the materials that we're considering and we need to consider to better inform our recommendations to prevent anything like this from happening again, had an element of national security to it. Now, the difficulty is you can't consider that evidence in an open forum because of the potential risk to attacks like this happening again. Now, in an inquiry, we can have closed sessions. And in this case in particular, you know, we, we know from, from what's been reported in the media already, there are significant failings through the handling of intelligence on Abadi and his brother. And the families are alive to that and the families want answers in relation to that. And I think if it was to be an inquest process, we wouldn't be able to consider those questions. So for an inquest there's a very limited but very important set of questions that a coroner's investigation has to consider. So those investigations into how are not as broad, perhaps, as the families would want, and the circumstances leading up to somebody's death might not be considered in as much detail. With an inquiry, that's very different. That element of the proceedings, that investigation into what happened, is such a broad spectrum of questions that are asked about what's happened that it starts to look at not only the death itself and the circumstances surrounding the death, but all of the events leading up to the death, which you can already start to see how an inquiry process benefits the families of the Manchesterina bombing much more than an inquest process does. An inquiry is much broader in terms of what it's trying to understand. It's not just about the death and how what happened happened, but it's also about how we can utilise the information that we're now investigating and coming across, to put things in place or make recommendations to prevent anything like that from happening again. The terms of reference is a set of questions that are usually set by the government, but those questions are usually arrived at through consultation with interested parties and people who have been affected. Now, in the case of Manchester Arena, so we're looking at pre-attack, so the movements of Abadi, the attack planning, the build-up to the attack... Then we've got the attack itself, so the circumstances surrounding his movements on the night and how he was able to get to the point that he was able to and detonate the device that he'd made. You know, what security arrangements did the arena have? Was there any breaches? Should he have been picked up or noticed quicker than he was? The emergency response to that attack, the efforts and the response of the blue light emergency services to the incident on that night, how effective were their responses? Is there anything that, if this was to happen again, we can learn from to ensure that that response is slicker or that, that any issues that we come across can be ironed out and resolved and better practices implemented so that the response can be far better? And the fourth underlying question, which is 
in the background to all of these different areas and he's perhaps the most important for the bereaved families as well as the investigation is the experience of each of the people who were injured or killed in the attack. We want to understand how they came to be in the situation they were, how they sustained their injuries and how they came about their death. And the fifth uh, question and it's what do you hope to achieve from the proceedings? At the very end, the chairperson will produce a report and that report will have all the findings after considering and examining all of the evidence and that report gets put before Parliament, put before the very people who are at the very top and in a position to, to bring that change. And with it being put before Parliament, we can hold them accountable if that change isn't brought about. I mean, you, you say that the, the terms of reference are set by the government. How much of a say do the families have? So the Inquiries Act 2005 and the Inquiry Rules 2006 give the chairperson a wide discretion. As part of that discretion, they have to decide how much involvement the families and those affected have. The legislation's geared towards the families being placed at the very heart of the process. And so the terms of reference, the remit of the inquiry's investigation, is of critical importance to the families. Our lead lawyer, Victoria Higgins, and I were keen to ensure the family's concerns were at the very heart of this inquiry and reflected in those terms of reference. A lot of opinion had been reported in the media, public reports such as the Kerslake report, Anderson report, Dominic Grieve report had been released and I visited the families and discussed with them the questions that they wanted answers to. And there were two main issues that were developing out of those meetings, which were a lack of effective emergency service response particularly from the fire service, and a lack of proper and effective handling of intelligence on Abadi by the police and security services. So in considering the terms of reference, we already knew the questions that our families wanted answers to, which were concerning pre-attack planning and emergency service response. But fortunately in this case, the terms of reference were set so broadly as to allow us to fully investigate the areas of concern raised by our families but also other areas of interest that equally deserve questions being asked of and answers given for the families. With the inquiry approaching, I asked Shane to explain what he expects to happen once proceedings get underway. What we're discussing is going to be very traumatic and a lot of the evidence discussed will raise emotions with families, so there has to be a safe space for them to be able to, to go and, and, and calm down or contemplate the evidence that they've just heard. We're also in need of a space for the press because the legislation dictates that this is a very transparent process. It's held in public and there has to be provisions for access to the public, not just those who are affected. This isn't a usual case. Um, it's a very public case. The families are stripped of privacy in some respects because they're having to grieve publicly. And each family will be affected differently and each family will react differently to not only the inquiry process, but to what's happened to them and their own ways of dealing with what's happened to them will be very different. In my role as their legal representative, we have to ensure that we support them through the process as best we can. Now, that might be advising them on the legal process. It might be taking questions from them. But sometimes it's about reassuring them and just giving them that support. So I think, you know, one thing that we've um, been very focused on uh, from day one is that everything we do is for the families. This one in particular, because I'm from Manchester, is difficult in the sense that I can relate to the content of what we're dealing with a lot more than any of the other inquiries that I've been involved in. That doesn't affect how you approach the inquiry. Ultimately, my opinions are irrelevant because I'm guided by the family's desire for questions, the family's understanding of the evidence and the interpretation of the facts as they come out of the inquiry process. When you're working on high-profile cases um, such as the Manchesterina case, the families will always be your main priority. But there is a wider public interest in the finding of the work that you're doing. And I think when you're contributing to improving society through the changes that you potentially are going to be bringing about through the recommendations and the findings of the inquiry process. It's such a rewarding process and I just feel incredibly lucky to be able to work on those types of cases and to, to serve the clients and get the truth that they want. 
Fegan Murray will be attending the inquiry. I asked what she hopes to come out of it. Obviously, it's not about blaming and shaming and naming. It's about hopefully establishing what went wrong, what could have been done better. And mostly, for me personally, an inquiry of this sort is always about this must never happen again. We need to learn from this and... And that's really quite important. And to me, that is the purpose of any inquiry of this sort. Will you want to say something at the inquiry? Yeah, I'll probably. I mean, I think there's a bit of an opportunity to say something about our loved ones. And I think I will say something about Martin, either myself or my husband. We haven't decided yet. And do you have questions you want answered? Um, not at this stage, because um, I haven't actually got my head round it, but I do know that if I have any questions whatsoever, I know that Shane Smith is there and, and the legal team are there and open to any questions. And, and that is quite reassuring to know that I can do that at any time. Fegan Murray's life has been totally transformed by the events of the 22nd of May 2017. She hopes to use her personal experience to create positive change. Obviously, the guy who did the, the arena attack and his brother, they are so young. They were both so, so young. But, you know, as grown-ups, we've messed things up and I felt very strongly I wanted to go to young people and tell them about what happened to us and that I hold my belief that young people are the key to a better future. I try to reach as many children, young people as I can I go and visit schools, talk to them about what happened to us. But then I say to them, look, we have made a mess of the world, but you you people are going to be the future decision makers, future politicians, future police and future doctors and um, teachers and educators. But most importantly, you're going to be future parents who can instill good values and morals and ethics into your future generations. And um, and then I asked them, who wants to live in a world without terrorism? And everybody lifts their hand usually. I obviously also talked to them about the dangers of online terrorism or radicalisation. Asked the children, how many of you here have ever, whilst online, come across material that you think is touching on extremism or terrorism. But on average, in a group of 100 children, between 40 and 60 hands come up. And that's a lot. That's a lot of hands that come up. And basically, I finish with a slide where it's, it's, a, it's a quote by Martin Kornfeld. If all of us do one act of kindness a day, we may just set the world into the right direction. Fegan is also campaigning for a new law named after her son, Martin's Law. You know, my husband and I went to a small music concert in Manchester and I took the tiniest handbag with me that day thinking I'll make the bag searches easy because very naively I thought, surely after the arena attack, all big venues will have security. And when we got there, there was no security whatsoever. And one day I thought, right, you know what? You're going to do something about it. And Martin's Law is a very simple thing, really. We want people to do the 45-minute free-of-charge training to recognise suspicious behaviours. We want people to look around their premises and do a risk assessment in terms of terrorism. Number three is that they deal with those vulnerabilities. So in a small cafe, that could be as simple as... Do I need to put a new lock on the back door or do I need some security cameras there? Then the next point is that actually um, any organisation, big or small, has a counter-terrorism plan. And the final point is that local authority will have their responsibility to play. And a simple example is if a football match was to finish, to keep people safe after the match and at the beginning of the match, because that's when terrorist attacks could equally happen. So we're starting talks again with the government now. One of the questions considered at the inquiry will be, could this attack have been stopped? I asked journalist Duncan Gardham for his thoughts. 
there are almost certainly a number of points during MI5's investigation into Salman Abidi because we know that he was on their radar and in fact they were looking at reopening an investigation into him. There are almost certainly a number of twists and turns in which if they had made different decisions they might have ended up looking at him on the day that he was planning his attack. But people can be under surveillance but they're not under surveillance the moment they do the critical thing. Or indeed, sometimes they turn up with weapons and no one's seen them buy them. You can't always stop them doing what they're going to do. They have to be lucky and thorough and make the right decisions an awful lot of the time to stop the, a determined attack. And it may be that at the end of this inquiry... There is a glaring error that means that this attack could have been stopped. But it may be that that isn't the case. I don't know the answer yet, and we won't know the answer until we get to the end. The inquiry will once again put Manchester in the national spotlight. Andy Burnham hopes that people will remember how the city responded in 2017. You know, we are living through a period of great turbulence in terms of divisions that we're seeing between uh, different communities. And um, I think we constantly need to remind ourselves of Manchester's response in that moment when tragedy hit, because it was magnificent and it resonated around the world. When I mentioned before that I had mayors in touch with me, most of them were saying, wow, your city stood for something in that moment when tragedy hit. It was a beacon of hope on that pretty bleak sort of world horizon. We did. We responded, I think, in a way that other cities perhaps haven't in their moments. We, we did. I think that something came through from Manchester that touched the world. And I think it was a missing ingredient. People had kind of lacked this kind of sense of an outpouring of humanity and togetherness in these, in these moments. And I think more recently we saw you know, something not dissimilar in, in New Zealand, led by the Prime Minister there, where we saw the, the attack in, uh, in Christchurch. So Manchester stood for something and does stand for something which really matters, and that, that was felt by people around the world, and I think they felt it from our city in a moment when they needed to feel it. Duncan Gardham has been writing about terrorism for 20 years. He told me that Manchester's reaction to this atrocity has been different to anything he's seen. Many people who don't go to Manchester don't understand just how personally it's felt by the city. Probably a function of how, you know, split up Britain is. You know, I mean, I was in London for 7-7 and I dealt with the aftermath of 7-7 and, and London reacted as London does, stoically. Everyone just got up and got went back to what they were doing, you know, and brave face and just said, we're not scared. But Manchester kind of did it differently. I mean, they were much more resilient and proud and open about their defiance. The I love Manchester and the bees, you know, the defiance was palpable. I th there was a, a weekend, I think after a couple of weeks, of investigating where there was a big concert and there were a lot of people out on the streets playing Manchester tunes, you know, loudly. <laughs> and one of the enduring images, you know, I've, I've got it on my phone and it was, you know, always sticks with me, was a, a girl on somebody's shoulders with a big sign that said, hate won't tear us apart. And uh, it sticks with me. Certainly now after his death, I'm really close to all of his friends and um, they're like my, my surrogate sons and daughters now. So I am grieving. I, am, I miss him. I can't even tell you how much I miss him. You know, the moment I wake up, he's in my mind. He's on my mind the whole time. My new job is I'm Martin's mum. That is my new job role, Martin's mum. I can't do my previous job anymore. I am now completely immersed in the world of counter-terrorism, online radicalisation. I will do whatever I can so that he hasn't died for nothing. I want that law to be brought in. 
one option that is not ever going to be the case for me is I will not sit in my lounge crying and disintegrating and sitting corners and quietly cry myself to sleep. That's not going to happen with me. That's not what he would have wanted for me. Thanks to the Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, journalist Duncan Gardham and Slater and Gordon lawyer Shane Smith for talking about their experience of this case. And thanks especially to Fegan Murray for sharing her story. If you want to know more about this or other episodes of The Case Files, have a look at the website slatergordon.co.uk forward slash podcast or head over to our social media channels and search hashtag casefilespod and join the conversation. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.